following audio is from Crossroads Church in West Ossipee, New Hampshire. For more information about Crossroads Church, you can go to www.crossroadsossipee.com. So turning back to Luke, I hope that uh, last week hearing from Teen Challenge was an encouragement to you. It's always a blessing to me uh, when they come, and it's always uh, a real-life reminder um, of the lesson of our text for this morning. Um, uh, the repeating theme that we've been seeing through Luke, the powerlessness and almightiness, our powerlessness and Jesus almightiness. And I, I, I give my sermons titles, not that you ever see them, but uh, just in my own catalog, I can remember. Um, I've, so I've entitled this morning's message, Powerless and Almightiness Part Infinity, because we just keep <laughs> getting it over and over again. Um, and my prayer is that this would uh, not be a discouragement to you, but an encouragement uh, and uh, for your faith and trust in Jesus. So let's look at our text, Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 37, page 867 in the Pew Bibles. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, again, as we turn to your word this morning, we ask for your help to understand your meaning and to be able to apply the truth of the principles that you have here for us. Lord, we cannot do that without the work of the Holy Spirit. So we pray, Lord, now that your spirit would speak, that you would illumine our hearts and minds from your word, your truth. May these not be my words, but yours. And may we be different as a result of our time in your word together today. Love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've said it to you before uh, in preaching. I don't look for secret codes or hidden messages in Scripture. I'm not into numerology or giving special significance to the numbers mentioned in Scripture. Um, I'm not smart enough for that. I prefer to take an idiot's eye view of Scripture because that's who I am and that's where I live, right? And, and I, want, I want to understand the Bible that way because, let's face it, that's who the Bible is written for, regular people. You don't have to have a, a seminary degree and, and all kinds of letters after your name. Nothing wrong with that. But you don't need all of that to understand the message of Scripture. So with that in mind, as we look at this text, it seems to me 
that's the most important thing, at least for our study this morning, not for all time, but the most important thing in our text is probably the most noticeable thing in our text. Now, we, we put the words up here on the screen for your convenience. However, if you have your own uh, paper Bible, sometimes, some versions of the Bible, you can look at this text. Squint your eyes so you can't even see the words. What sticks out? Right in the middle, there's a sentence written in red. That, so let's set the stage here. All right. Peter and James and John, along with Jesus, had just spent the night on the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus' appearance changing and his clothes becoming like lightning um, and, and uh, glowing face and, and sparkly clothes. And then Moses and Elijah show up and are talking with Jesus, right? This is, that, that, that was at nighttime. When you read the New Testament, do you ever picture anything happening at night? Our flannel graph when I was a kid, never nighttime. It's always daytime. Sky's always blue. Grass is always green, right? I've been to the Holy Lands. Not a lot of grass, uh, but night happens there just as well as it does here. Mind blown, right? It's amazing. So that the transfiguration most likely happened at night. And then after that experience, Jesus, Peter, James, and John kind of joined the rest of the disciples as well as this crowd. Uh, so there's, there's this pile of people uh, waiting to meet them. And out of this crowd comes the voice of a desperate father. Um, Verse 38, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. I kind of wish this was like Father's Day because... All the dads would resonate with this. We have a desperate dad, right? First century culture, having a son was really important, culturally speaking. Um, I know that uh, for my own family, uh, we, we are kind of genealogy people, and, and my granddad and I talked a lot about the Keniston name and our history and could trace it back um, you know, a thousand years or two. Uh, and... When, when my firstborn was a son, that was a huge deal because, you know, I was the last Keniston, you know, and it, if I didn't have a son, that, that meant the Keniston name, you know, wasn't carried on. It's not like, it's just a son thing, right? I, I'm not going to interpret it however you want. I don't care. It was a big deal for us. It's not a big deal for you. I don't care. It was a big deal for us, and then we just kept having sons, and, the, you know, Grandpa was ecstatic about that. And that's Anyway, in first century culture, having a son meant that you were cared for in your old age. You know, there was, there was a lot culturally um, at work here. And this dad has a son who is tormented, suffering um, with what sounds to me, um, and I'm no expert, but it sounds like epilepsy. Right, as well as uh, compounded with an actual demon, a demon uh, possessing this uh, this young man. 
Um, and this this brings up an important point, though uh, it's it's something that's true, though it is not. I don't believe the intention of the author in this particular account. Um, the point is that the power of Satan can reach into illness. But that reach is never beyond the restraint of God. Right? We can't blame every, every bad thing that happens to us in our lives. Everything that we don't like must be Satan at work. That's not, that's hardly ever true. I think most likely Satan enjoys making your life a little bit easier and a little bit better than taking your eyes off the Lord Jesus. However, when we consider, when we think about the power of Satan reaching into illness, we have to consider the purpose of illness and difficulties, which does steer us back to the singular point of this sermon. When something bad happens to us, or someone we love, what's the first question we ask? Why? God, why is this happening? I, you see my struggle half the time. I can't talk. Why, God, would you do that to me? And sometimes, let's be honest, I, I had a conversation with my sister yesterday, and I was being critical of an idea that she had. Go for it. Why not? That's what you do with your siblings, right? And uh, she's like, you're a pastor. You're supposed to be positive. And I said, what? I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be honest. <laughs> your idea is dumb. Right? It didn't go quite that way. but We have to recognize in a spirit of honesty that most of the time our troubles are just natural consequences of our own choices. When you play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. Okay? So just, right? Most of the time, um, most of the time our troubles are a test of our faith and obedience and opportunities to recognize our powerlessness and the Lord Jesus' almightiness. There's, there's times we're going to have hard times because we made a bad choice. That's life, right? But all the time, the troubles that we have, the hard times that we go through, are a chance for our, test, our, our faith to be tested, our obedience to be tested, and our opportunities to recognize who we really are and who God really is, what kind of strength we really possess, and what kind of strength he really possesses. Now, this makes me think of John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. It says, As he passed by, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is a common thought, and I think it's still fairly common. You did something wrong, and so you have this affliction. You know, when I was first dealing with, um, with aphasia, the, the, the doctors wanted to try to figure out what I had done. You know, it must be your own anxiety problems that's making this happen to you or some trauma that you experienced. And I asked them, show me what that trauma was, and I'll, maybe I'll agree with you, but I didn't, I didn't have anything. Anyway. 
sometimes we just think bad things happen because we've, we've sinned somehow. We don't even know. And that's not how it works. Yes, you make a bad choice, you're going to get natural consequences. Not stuff like this. Man is born blind because of a parent's sin? No, not necessarily. Jesus answered in verse 3, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed. So, something bad happens, and you ask God why. That's the answer. So that the works of God might be displayed in you. Right? And this kind of makes my reaction when the tire's flat and the sparrow won't come down, right? And you're laying in the dirt and you can't, and the jack won't fit. Can't nothing be easy? Why, God? It's exactly the same thing. So that the power of God might be displayed. And when we gave up trying to get the tire off, our hands are not on the tire at all. Boom. It came off. And, and we're back to work. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You're a better mechanic than I am. Have you ever think about it that way? Do you ever think that your troubles might be designed by God so that the works of God might be displayed in you? I think you should. I think we all should. As you think about that, consider the words of John Calvin. We are worse than stupid if a, con- if a condition so wretched does not arouse us to prayer. Things are going bad and we just spiral downwards. Instead of looking upwards, we are, Calvin says we're worse than stupid. But didn't you, like, you got out of bed thinking, I'm going to go to church and it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so positive. Because pastor is like, so positive, right? No. You and my sister, right? I'm here to be honest with you. We are worse than stupid if a condition so wretched does not arouse us to prayer. Let your troubles drive you to the arms of Jesus. All right? All right. That's the Holy Spirit saying get back on track. Let's get back to our scene in Luke, verse 38. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he cries out, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him, and it will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Reasonable request. Lord Jesus, something horrible is happening to my son. I tried to get help. Nobody can help. Can you help me? And the response you expect from Jesus is, yes. Do you be gone? Your son is restored. Is that what he says? No. It's the sentence in red. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now, in my Bible, most of verse 41 is written in red. I know not everybody has a red-letter Bible. That's fine. That just means that Jesus is speaking, if you have a red-letter 
red letter Bible. That's not to discount everything that is not written in red uh, because the Holy Spirit wrote that part. That's important to remember, right? Don't get confused. This statement sticks out to me. Why would Jesus say that? Lord, my son, he's sick. He's got a demon. Help. Nobody could help. You can help. And he, and what? He's like rebuking you faithless and twisted generation. I'm pretty sure that's not what this dad was expecting to hear. So who was it? Who was it that Jesus was rebuking? That's important for us to understand. He just fires this off at the universe, right? Both Matthew and Mark record this incident in their gospel accounts, and it fills us in a little bit on who was there. Jesus, Peter, James, and John were just coming, coming onto this scene, right, meeting this crowd. Um, and the crowd is made up of the nine other disciples, right, because they're 12, Three of them, just, it's just math. It's math. just want to show you that I can do it. Right? Math in public, right? That's a lot of pressure. That's why I wrote it down on Thursday while I was by myself. So there's the nine remaining disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees were there. And then this, this kind of nameless crowd, this sea of, uh, of people that seems to pop up sometimes and then go away and then pop up again. Um, And then from out of this crowd uh, comes the father and his son. So consider that group. Disciples, scribes and Pharisees, the public, his father and son. Who is Jesus rebuking? You faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? If Jesus walked in and he's like, hey, you faithless and twisted generation, how long am I supposed to put up with you and your nonsense? Yeek. Yikes. So let's, let's consider it. It may be the crowd that Jesus is rebuking, this sea of people, this nameless mob of, with a mixture of curiosity and superstition and desperation. You know, we're not really sure the motivation of these people to come and hear Jesus. Matthew and Mark both record Jesus having compassion on this crowd because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Right? These, these folks were victims of bad teaching from the scribes and Pharisees, the religious people they were supposed to be able to trust to, to help them get closer to God. Right? These folks, uh, are, are they have to deal with legalistic oppression. You know, You can't really please God unless you do things our way and tie the things on your on your wrists and around your head, and you've got to do all of these you know, prayers at certain times and all of this stuff, these people were oppressed, faithless, and twisted. Now, maybe it was the scribes and Pharisees that Jesus was rebuking. Right? They're always concocting some test to trap Jesus. Right? They're trying to get him to say the wrong thing or heal on the wrong day so they can accuse him. Those guys are certainly faithless and twisted. They're counting on their own efforts, their own works, their own rules, their own laws. Right, we talk about the law of God right up here when we're doing the catechism. That's ten laws. 
the Pharisees added a whole nother book that we don't study here, full of rules and laws. Those guys are certainly faithless. They're counting on their own efforts. They're twisted, and they're twisting the minds of other people with bad teaching. It could be that Jesus is rebuking the nine disciples. See, math. Peter, James, and John weren't there yet. They were with Jesus. They weren't on this scene. The, father's at, the father of the boy asked the disciples to heal his son, to cast out the demon. Now, I know memory's not great as far as sermons go, but if you go all the way back to the beginning of chapter 9, 36 verses previous to this, these, these guys had great success in casting out demons and healing people all over the place, right? And Jesus sent them out with power over demons and to heal and to preach. And now they're powerless to help. Here's just another demon-possessed person. You've done this before. Why couldn't you do it this time? And maybe they didn't have enough faith to cast out this demon. Maybe their understanding of where their power came from was a little off. They seem to be qualified as faithless and twisted. Understanding is skewed. They didn't have the faith to cast out this demon. Maybe Jesus was rebuking them. Maybe Jesus was rebuking this dad. Mark records this interaction in Mark 9, 21 and 23. Jesus asked uh, the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for those who believe. If you can. John Calvin wrote about this interaction. We see how little honor this father renders to Christ. For supposing him to be some prophet whose power was limited, he approaches him with hesitation. He doesn't know who Jesus really is. So, like, if you can do something, can you? Jesus like, if I can. You don't even know who I am. The son of God, right? Maybe the father didn't have enough faith for his son to be healed. Maybe he's the one who's faithless and his understanding twisted. Or, there's the last option. Maybe it's everybody. I'd like for you to read Galatians. Uh, I'd like to read for you Galatians chapter 5. You got nervous there, right? I'm going to make you read now. I'd like to read for you Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23, and I'd like to read them out of the New King James Version of the Bible. I'm still here. It's still me. It's okay. King Jimmy uses a word in his version that really nails the point here. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The word is long-suffering. The English Standard Version, which we have in our pews and I've been reading from today, says patience. But I think long-suffering is a much more pointed term. Jesus is the ultimate long-sufferer. 
He is the best at it. We tend to think that Jesus' suffering was com- confined to the cross, right, to, his, to the, the events of his passion and being scourged and, and slapped and spit on. His suffering is not confined to that day. We could go on and on about the disciples and how they just don't get what's going on. They never understand what Jesus says as if we're any better. Jesus has to put up with that. He is suffering through that, through their ignorance and arrogance. And what's on display in this scene is the powerlessness of people and the almightiness of Jesus. Disciples are powerless to fix this problem. The dad asked them to cast out the demon, and they couldn't. The crowd was powerless to fix this problem. The father and the son were, were powerless. The dad and his kid were powerless to fix this problem. But at the end of the day, the right thing happened. They brought their problem to Jesus. I use the word almightiness when thinking about this. The theologians use the word sovereignty, the sovereignty of God. God is completely sovereign. That means he has power and control over everything. All things. Everything. The day that you get the news. The color of your carpet. The continuation of your income. The relationship with your parents. God is sovereign over all of that. He's the one that keeps our atoms together. And he does all things with one singular motivation. And what is that? Our good. Right? (laughs) I'm not here to be positive. I'm here to be honest. He does all of that for his glory alone. Your happiness is irrelevant to God's glory. I love you. Your happiness is irrelevant to God's glory. He uses the conniving of the scribes and the Pharisees. He uses the ignorance of the crowd. He uses the failure of the disciples. He uses the desperation of this father to bring people to faith in Christ. That's sovereignty. He uses the things we don't get. He uses the things we don't like. He uses the things we don't understand. That's sovereignty. If everything went the way that we want, not only would we, everybody else would suffer as a result. I think we should take great comfort in this. I personally take great comfort in this because that means if God is sovereign... He can use people like me to reach people for Christ. He can use folks like you to reach people with the gospel. 
if God is sovereign, that's possible. If God is not sovereign, the pressure is now on us to get it right every single time. And when I pray in, in preparation for this every week, I pray, Lord, speak to me that I might speak to them, that you might speak to them through me. That's sovereignty because he interprets the words between my mouth and your ears. If we can't trust him to do that, that's a lot of pressure on me and I quit. (laughs) Alistair Begg said, you don't have a large enough view of the sovereignty of God that even when the disciples are a bunch of cloth-eared nincompoops, people still come to Christ because that's exactly what happens in this story. That's what's going on in this account. The father brings his son to the guys who are closest to Jesus, and they can't do anything about it. The father still comes to Christ. Is it based on the goodness and the qualifications of the disciples? No, certainly not. When we start to get a grasp on the sovereignty of God, like everybody there that day, we too will be astonished at the majesty of God. Let's not keep him boxed up. Let God be God and trust him in all things because Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the way that your spirit works that you can interpret this message before it reaches the ears of these people. That you can translate this word into the message that people need. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that it's not just here. But 2,000 years ago that day at the bottom of the mountain, people came to Christ regardless of what anybody else was trying to accomplish. We thank you that you are absolutely sovereign and you are absolutely worthy of our trust. We thank you that you are the ultimate long sufferer, putting up with our ignorance and our arrogance, our disinterest and our laziness. Father, I pray that your spirit would apply these words to our hearts that we would follow you more closely, that our trust in you would increase. For those who have never put their trust in you, that they would cry out to you in faith. Accept the truth that Jesus' death on the cross was for their sin. Accept him as their Savior. Follow him as their Lord. That you would fill them with your Holy Spirit. Wash away their sins. We thank you for that mighty work, Lord. We pray that you would be glorified above all in this place and in the families that meet around the world today to bring you glory. We love you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would like to participate in the mission of Crossroads Church through financial support, checks can be mailed to Crossroads Church, Post Office Box 576, West Ossipee, New Hampshire, 03890